The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox, alongside us. The White Sox season is miserably coming to an end. They failed completely, and that's the theme today. We're going to talk to Beefloaf from the 108 and from the 108.com to get his opinion on the big league club, some organizational philosophy stuff, as well as what we can look forward to as White Sox fans as the 2023 season looms, because, man, there's going to be some stuff happening, we think. But, James, let's start here. Before we get into the big league conversation I just want to provide the listener with a little bit of an update on what we have to offer at Future Sox and some of the stuff that you've been working on, specifically related to the end of the minor league season and what that means out in Arizona. Yeah, so the Arizona Fall League will be starting, um, I believe, October 3rd. You know, I wrote the preview for Sox Machine. It's a little bit different this year for the White Sox because like, it seems like in past years they've sent some interesting prospects. Like Even last year, Cespedes went and Jose Rodriguez went and struggled a little bit. This year, I think, as we talked about with Jim Margulis, like, I feel like the White Sox used Project Birmingham a little bit as like the end-of-season showcase because for the Arizona Fall League, while it's loaded with prospects from all over baseball, I mean, like the top guys for the White Sox, like Adam Hackenberg is a guy that we've talked about, 18th round pick in 2021. He'll be there doing some catching, and I think, you know, just to catch other pitchers from other organizations and, you know, get another look um, at him, essentially. And then there's a guy like Moises Castillo, who who was okay. He was a minor league Rule 5 pick last year. He's Rule 5 eligible this year. So he'll be there. And then the most interesting of the position players might be Terrell Tatum, who was a 16th rounder out of NC State last year. You know, he he cracked the BA top 30 this year during one of their updates. Um, he's a speedy left-handed hitting outfielder that played pretty well um, in low A and high A. And then he was popped with a PED suspension this year um, and, and just like finished out his season suspended. So he'll be in the desert for the White Sox as well. And then they're sending... 
you know, a group of pitchers that are mostly relievers that are all like double A or higher uh, rule five type guys. Like I, and they typically send these guys just to see how they do against other competition in the small sample to see if they're worth possibly protecting in the rule five draft. So yeah, not, not a super interesting group for the White Sox, but you know, the AFL as a whole is always pretty interesting. I want to take this moment to kind of acknowledge us real quick, James, because over the last, this is our third season covering White Sox minor league baseball together, at least as the heads of future Sox. And we're at the end of another year. We've experienced a turnover in the scouting department as Mike Shirley is taking over in that regard. This is sort of a different looking organization. I think this is something that we can celebrate um, just being able to focus on some of the stuff that one we've accomplished at Future Socks. I think it's a lot of fun to look ahead moving forward, James. We've just experienced a lot. And I, I want to take this time to acknowledge the, the listener, the supporters of Future Socks and the work that we've done to get us to this point now partnered with Socks Machine. I remember in 2020, the season that we put together uh, just in terms of covering the White Sox and to see where we've come now. I, I think it's a moment that we can celebrate. Yeah, I think it's I mean, it's definitely been great, right? I mean, 2020, we had I feel like we had a lot of our friends on the podcast and, you know, some people who weren't necessarily friends, but they came on to plug their books and their podcasts and all that was fun, too. Right. But finally, like having minor league players to talk about was fun, even though, you know, this, I mean, the system did dip for a while, right? I mean, we talked about the 30th rank farm system, I think, for like a few cycles. That seems to be changing a little bit. And, you know, one of the reasons for that is you said, like Mike Shirley, I think the drafts have been more interesting for sure. And we've talked about how Mike Shirley has a type and the, the Sox are in an interesting spot right now where, you know, they, they were a bottom tier farm system, but they could be more middle of the pack, depending on how some of these guys do. And, you know, we talked about the Arizona Fall League instructs will be going on. That's probably more interesting, I think, than the Arizona Fall League for the Sox, because like you got a guy like, you know, I heard Noah Schultz has looked really good out in the desert. And, you know, it's not they're not like real games they're like instructional league stuff. But I mean, he's out there. Tanner McDougal is healthy and throwing. He's going to throw in games. Like that's a guy that you were very excited about that obviously like didn't have a season this season because he was recovering from Tommy John. And then, you know, just all sorts of, you know, young guys out there like Eric Hernandez and Lloydell Chapei and some of these young international signings and, you know, recent guys that we don't know much about are getting their first stateside action. So, you know, follow along with us. We'll have it. And uh, Baseball America is a really good resource for, like instructional league, they, they have, you know, their writers are boots on the ground in Arizona. And like with the Arizona fall league going on, like everybody is in Arizona. So like, you know, you, they make their way back to these backfield games too. So we'll get reports from instructs. Um, I'm sure throughout the month of October. Yeah. Just thinking back to see, I mean, three years, man, Luis Robert, you had the signing, you had the numbers there. You had the Juan Moncada, right? I mean, that was in 2019. I want to say it. Well, yeah. Yeah. That was, I think it was like pre pre pandemic. It was like, right. right. You know, it was like early 2020. Yeah. Yeah. That was interesting. I remember getting a, getting a phone call from, uh, you know, not from the White Sox front office, but indirectly from the White Sox front office telling me that the Yohan Moncada extension rumors weren't true. And then uh, seven days later, the, the signing happened. So that was that was fun. There it is. Stay tuned. I mean, that's just a little snippet of what we 
have accomplished and we look forward to doing more for you the white Sox fans and in the immediate sense we have something for you beef loaf from the 108 podcast and from the 108.com you'll want to stay tuned for this i think it'll be therapeutic for you the Sox fans so thanks for being with us across the ride at future Sox. subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already without further ado let's talk to beef loaf from the 108 the best way to learn a language immersion living where the language is spoken and using it every day But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Oh, it's always a joy to bring in Beef Loaf up from the 108. You can follow Beef at Mr. Delicious 13 on Twitter, as well as the 108 podcast. Go to fromthe108.com to search for it and also follow them on Twitter at fromthe108. It's that time of year, though, when we're kind of familiar with this feeling, Beef. The White Sox, <laughs> over the last decade plus, uh, has has given us this feeling, but it's different this time around with that World Series expectations in year three of the window, and it's just a complete and utter disaster. So let's start there. Let's talk White Sox. Uh, Beef, Beautiful. beginning with the, the news of Tony La Russa not coming back for the rest of the 2022 campaign. What does that mean moving forward? And what do you foresee coming out of that decision just in terms of looking down the road once the season is finally over? What's next? I mean, I think when he, when he initially uh, you know, was relieved of his, his duties for uh, medical reasons, I think materially a, a lot of us thought it was kind of a, a foregone conclusion that he wasn't going to be back in the dugout the rest of the year. And then there was kind of no signal or anything. It was just kind of like Miguel's thrown into the spot. And then they go on a heater. Uh, the second Miguel is thrown into the spot. And, and so it, to me, it was kind of like, oh, good. They finally, you know, uh, put a nail in this one and, and said, okay, this is the this is the path we're going on here. I don't know that it does much for this year because by the time they announced it, you, you weren't completely mathematically eliminated, but you're basically eliminated by that point. So it was it was it was coming through with all of the yes, uh, Luis Roberts not going to play again this year, and probably Michael Kopech won't pitch again, and and all the all the guys kind of just being. Uh, you know, put down for the remainder of the year. So it was, uh, you know, it, it, it was, I wish it would have happened a little earlier. I wish they would have been a little more aggressive with the announcement, kind of given a little more support to Miguel Cairo that, hey, this is your job for a month. You know, let's see what you can do. And with that being said, now let's take it all the way back to the beginning of the season, right? And I guess we can even go further and cite when he was hired, and that's Tony LaRusso. But mm-hmm. his just approach as a manager, the hands-off approach, from someone who's been in the league for his entire life and 
puts it on the players to have their own accountability on situations or performance. However, obviously, we know that Tony La Russa has made decisions that's impacted outcomes of ball games. But essentially, his philosophy in the clubhouse is let the players be themselves and do their thing. And he's sort of hands off. How has that impacted this roster dating back to when he entered the organization? You know, it's interesting, like going all the way back to the beginning, you know, I didn't care for the hire to begin with. But when you there's there's two parts, right? You're you're a fan over here where you're like, I don't I don't care for this. And then when you're trying to do analysis like we do it at from the 108.com, I'm trying to be uh, even about this. I'm trying to give it every shot. I'm trying to really investigate what's going on and just think through how it's all working out. And with regards to his management style, uh, Mike, you know, <laughs> managing anyone. Uh, not not every management style work. Uh, not a single management style works for every single person, right? Some people that they're going to thrive under that type of management style. We're like, okay, it's on your own, or whatever. Some people do need a swift kick in the arse, you know. And it's it 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 changes. It's different. Some some people do need someone kind of all over them, micromanaging them. Some of them you just let them take the ball and run away, and they're absolutely fine with it. And so I don't know if you can have kind of the the, the blanket philosophy here. And it and it seems like it it didn't work out in in the end. And and you you see the uh, you know. You know the 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 boat crashing here, and then it's just not kind of coming through. Nothing coming to fruition uh, with the second year uh, of this group. And yes, there was underperformances, but you're right. Tactically, it always just felt like you know you'd see the weird tactical stuff, but then you, you also like he always just seemed a step behind or one beat behind what you think should be happening. Right, reliever X should probably be warming up right now, and then it would be like a minute, two minutes, three minutes. Oh, now they're finally up, and it's like. It just seemed a little, a little bit behind with his managing, uh, especially in in year two in twenty twenty two. Yeah, I mean, like, how many times were you at a game and there's like a left handed reliever in the game and Gavin Sheets is up, you know, and they let Gavin Sheets hit for himself, and then the next <laughs> half inning, Adam Engel replaces Gavin Sheets like in the outfield. Like, it's yes. just like all these little things, you know. And I'm kind of similar in my like, I hated the hire. Um, I thought it would crash and burn like for other reasons if it did. Right. Like I kind of thought like he's not going to get along with this group, like that type of stuff. Like I, I, Michael tell you, like, I I thought he'd be fine from seven to 10 every night. Like I I didn't think this would be a problem (laughs) and it was definitely a problem. And, you know, Mike said, you know, his hands off style. And the thing that's weird about that is like he was hands off sometimes, but then you get like Ken Rosenthal and all the, you know, those guys writing about the situation where it seems like, you know, Frank Menachino is preaching something to these hitters. And then Tony runs counter to that, you know, where it's like, oh, right. yeah, just don't don't be afraid to make contact, get a hit here. And these players are just getting like different messages all year. And Tony doesn't listen to the coaching staff. So, I mean, I guess how surprising was that? Because like, I guess like we could have seen some of this last year, but they went to the playoffs. So you like don't really think about it, but just right. It probably existed, James, but it just because because they won, it, it washed it away, right? You know, that's kind of the thought process there. I'll be honest with you. I, I thought when he came in, I thought that the players would like him a lot only because, and I said this on the 108 podcast at the time, you know, he's a baseball nerd. They're baseball nerds, right? They're all geeks in their their area right here, right? They're, you get to the top of this, and you, I figured they would, they would have almost an adoration for him. I was more concerned about him, you know, w- would he tactically be able to keep up with the current era? Because when he was a tactical genius – they didn't have all these, uh, you know, they, they just weren't running numbers and queries and data to to push uh, advantages like they are today. And so, like, that's tough to do, a one-man show, like he like he kind of tends to be as far as, like, uh, you know, making decisions. What, what do they call it? His analytical gut. Yeah, now you're going against high-powered computers. It's a different world out there. And so I, I wasn't sure how much of that he would 
he would be ingesting and then re re pushing through. But you're but you're absolutely right, James. It's like this probably was happening last year, and they just played well enough to cover up uh, any of the mistakes. I mean, I know I saw you in the ballpark, and we were just talking about how if they would just hit a league average amount of home runs, they probably would would be in the playoffs this year. It's just like there there's even even with what's all that's gone wrong this year, they're probably going to have been a, a pop up performance or two that would have covered it up, and they probably would have made the playoffs again had those happened. Well, so I, t- I mean, I think I tweeted yesterday, like, like if they go to Miguel Cairo at the all-star break, like I think they win the division and you like, can't really <laughs> convince me otherwise. And like, you know, I used to be the guy that was like, oh yeah, the manager doesn't matter that much. And I think like Miguel Cairo, like man replacement level manager X, like is proof yep. of that. Like, I think that shows how bad Tony kind of was like, it's just like so counterproductive that you have this coaching staff that I think a lot of people thought was okay or whatever. Um, But if like none of them are allowed to do their jobs and it's just like he's emperor, like it's very easy to see like how some of this happened, I think. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like on the the stat head side, they really attack the like the tactical parts of of the game. But there's a lot of managing that doesn't go on between seven and ten. Right. And and I think this whole situation has made at least me personally, and I don't know if it's made others too, swing back more towards that other stuff is probably more important than the lever pushing. Yes, you don't want to be egregious, like you were saying, let Gavin Sheets bat against the lefty and and then replace him the next inning. Like, that's dumb stuff right there. But if you avoid all that kind of, like, really bad decision-making, the the other 21 hours of the day maybe are more important. And maybe I haven't been giving them as much credit as they need because you're right. They got a little pop there for Miguel. And, look, Miguel's not perfect. He's managing for the first time himself. So, like, trying to watch him, too. I've seen him make some weird decisions. I mean, I would not have gone to Vince Velasquez in the eighth inning in Seattle. Yes, it worked. But, you know, there, there's some strange stuff there, too. So, for me, the jury's out. But I, I do like the way he communicates. And when I watch a post-game presser, I'm like, this is what I want to hear from my team's manager. I want this this kind of approach. I want this enthusiasm and everything. And so, for me, it was a breath of fresh air from my perspective of just ingesting him. I would totally avoid Tony Pressers just because I got nothing out of it. So you've seen a lot of these games in person, obviously. Like, what is what is your least favorite? Do you have one of the Tony things? Like, where he, you know, like, the the over-reliance on relievers only going one inning, like the leaving pitchers too long for, you know, to get a pitcher win the, the weird lineups. What's your, your favorite or your, I guess it's not your favorite, but like your, you know, the thing that you hate the most that Tony did consistently. Cause there's a lot of these little things that most managers wouldn't do in 2022 that he does. Yeah. There's a lot of little things. I, I mean, I think it's, it, it's probably for me, it's the, um, the single inning usage of the reliever and the being afraid to go back to back days on some of these guys. Like I understand in certain instances, Kendall Graveman's been horrible on back to back days. We know the Joe Kelly thing came out that he was coming off the injury and he had it that where you couldn't use him on back to back days until after July one. So for those two, I get it, but he, you should be able to use Ronaldo Lopez on back to back days. And you should be able to use Ronaldo Lopez for two innings. If you need to, you should be able to use Liam for two innings on Tuesday night. And, and try to lock the 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 wind down like that stuff. I know that was Miguel doing that, but that's, you know, kind of as a, a philosophy. That was the the thing that I, I kind of like looked at the most as a, as a bull. And also the, 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 the like I said earlier, the, the slow beat of getting the next guy ready. Look, Joe Kelly's out there falling apart. You let him throw 20 more pitches instead of just getting him out of the game and, and replacing him with a new guy. Now, Miguel Cairo righted that ship uh, uh, the other night when he, when uh, when he pulled Jimmy Lambert after three batters, realizing he didn't have it, and put in Aaron Bummer like that, you need a little more reactiveness sometimes. Sometimes these guys don't have it. You don't just let them pitch out of it. 
on the contrary, I liked that Tony would go deeper with his starters. I think he he was like, this was turning back the clock, and it really benefited the White Sox the last two years because he had good starters, and why not ride those guys as much as possible? And so I, I was that was a, a breath of fresh air that I, I think if we had a, like a younger, more modern manager, we might not have seen. We might have seen like clipping the wings a little bit on the starters more. And I like when these guys go deep in the games and they're effective. I mean, Johnny Cueto uh, all year has kind of been that guy. So let's switch this to the front office perspective. Now, Beef, I said this before, you and Rick Hahn, at least to my knowledge, have never been seen in the same place at the same time. So <laughs> not, I want to <laughs> right, get your opinion on the way the White Sox went about creating this roster across their window. We can even date it back to Ricky Renteria days in 2020. But the way that the front office approached the roster, Tony La Russa comes in in 2021. He's got a you know, particular manage, uh, managerial style. Yep. And he, he used players, in my opinion, not exactly how Rick Hahn had intended, you know, playing Leary Garcia all the time and not necessarily platooning guys in the outfield um, the way Rick Hahn had foreseen. So let's get your opinion. If you're in the management office, right, and you're in the general manager's room and you're wearing his shoes, how can you justify the way the White Sox have put together their roster over the last three years, specifically within holes that we knew were areas of concern? Well, the obvious is it didn't address certain positions that we knew were obvious positions of need. Second base, right field, left-handed power hitting. Like, they're obvious things that you kind of needed to uh, address. N- never really got addressed in this. He did, I mean, I'll give uh, Rick Hahn credit. I was skeptical of the Liam Hendricks signing just because of the amount of money and you don't always get all the years of production out of the reliever. Like they, those guys sometimes fall off kind of the end of that. Liam's been terrific all throughout the deal. And I expect him to continue to be uh, terrific throughout it. But, but as far as like building up this roster, you don't know what stuff is going to ooze up from the minors and become a productive piece. Right. And so looking at it from that perspective, you know, they didn't kind of shape this in a way or weed it out in a way that could could bounce the roster out. They're just so bad defensively. And the, the only way they could remedy it in the offseason uh, this past year was get yourself a, a killer defender at second and or right field. They chose second base. They chose to go get Josh Harrison, who's been fine, but it hasn't had much of an effect because the offense has been so bad. Now, with that being said, another thing that I want to ask you related to the minor league depth does that have anything to do with the decision-making process of Rick Hahn, Kenny Williams, and those assembling the roster? Do you believe they are restricted at all in their thinking? $196 million payroll this year, highest in franchise history. But they withheld going after the big splashes in particular areas like in right field or second base. Uh, do you think it has to do with anything related to the depth or the confidence they feel in the minor leagues that they have right now? Oh, with like leaving a placeholder for Oscar Colas so he's got a, a position <laughs> to play? I mean, like, I hope not. I hope that's not the thinking. I hope, I hope the thinking is always excess. I hope the thinking is always great. If that guy shoves uh, the guy who we signed out of the spot and, and becomes a better player, he plays. He goes up in there and plays. I mean, we haven't had a lot of that as White Sox fans, right? I mean, even Andrew Vaughn, who's playing very well, you know, they kind of rushed him up here. They didn't let him murder AAA and say, oh, my God, we have this guy down there who is just unstoppable and we got to find a spot for him. They kind of rarely allow that to happen, even when good players are, are kind of on the field. They, they, they're they kind of rushing the, the blue chip prospects up to the majors. That's why I was surprised we didn't see Oscar Colas, you know, the, these last couple weeks in, in September. Just like, well, let's just see what he got style. And because you don't really have a right fielder right now. you got, got a couple guys patching it. You know, uh, jumping back to uh, to, to uh, front office decisions, you know, my 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 uh, arse has been sour since 
the trade deadline in 2020. And and if you look at the the uh, competitive window of trade deadlines for the White Sox, right, 2020 through 2022, they basically sat on their hands for two of them. You know that if I were a player in the clubhouse, especially this year, I would be pissed. I'd be pissed that they didn't go out and get something, some reinforcement to help them at the trade deadline. Yes, I know Elvis Andrews fell in their lap kind of uh, you know, almost a month later or, or three weeks later, and that's been a huge bump. But there's no guarantee you're going to get that. You know, They saw no aggression from their front office trying to help them. They're dying on the vine over here, man. They're struggling to stay 500. They can't keep people on the field. And they didn't go out and get anything to help them. You know, Because I wonder what the interplay is there. Like You, you see how the team looks like they quit. Maybe the reason they, they quit is because they're like, hey, they're not helping us. They're not bringing anybody here to help us. And we're obviously a deficient roster. We need some help with this. So I, I love the 2021 trade deadline. I thought Rick Hahn did a terrific job. It didn't work. So what? Shake that off. You get Shooters got to shoot. Take your next shot there. And in 2020, I know in hindsight, people are going to be, well, thank goodness we didn't give anyone away because obviously this has fallen off the rails. But I would like to see aggression even when you're kind of just close and not in the driver's seat. Well, I think the thing that drives me the most crazy is, you know, when they have an off season and they've done this multiple times, right? They have an off season like they just have where they leave holes. And then Rick Hahn mentions like, oh yeah, like we left some in the hopper, like to, for the trade deadline. Right. And then the trade deadline comes yeah. and they don't do anything. So it's like, so it's <laughs> right. like at the trade deadline, they're like, oh yeah, we'll, we'll do more in the off season. It's like, it, it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like they, just, you know, like they just like keep pushing it down the road. And like, yeah. look, they obviously like added, like they spent a lot of money. That's why it's kind of tough. Yeah. Like, you know, for me, like somebody who's been on the, like Jerry Reinsdorf doesn't spend enough money train. Like, I mean, they spent a lot of money, like <laughs> who, who wanted all these relievers? I, I don't know. I mean, Rick Hans right. like, got the general manager, like tag next to him. So, I mean, I guess we'll blame him like that. That's fine. It's just, <laughs> yeah, it like doesn't really make any sense. So, I mean, one of the biggest things they just don't hit for enough power. We've talked about this and yeah. it was weird. Cause like after last season, Rick Hahn identified that as a need. He said, we need to hit for power. We need left-handed power. And then they didn't do anything to fix it. How do they take steps towards fixing this? Cause I don't, I just like, I don't know how much they're going to be able to add from the outside. Like it's going to take a lot of internal improvement, I think. So how, how do you go about like, you know, making the ball go far so the team can finally go far again? Yeah, it's kind of funny that that this is the this is the topic, and then the first issue that you have going into the offseason is what to do with Jose Abreu, right? Do you try to bring Jose Abreu back because you have too many guys for too little uh, spots? I mean, we've watched it for two years now. Andrew Vaughn cannot play the outfield, and that's that's just it is what it is. The guy's it doesn't have the instincts. He's too slow. I mean, he's he's faster than Yasmani Grandal and Herb Lawrence, but n- not much faster than anybody else, right? So he's got to be at first base or DH. We've watched second half of Eloy and them trying to keep him injured. And I think Eloy Jimenez has been playing at, I don't know, 75 or 80%, not at 100%. And he's absolutely murdering the ball as a DH. So I think you're kind of at the spot where even if you think you can get Eloy healthy, you probably don't want him as your everyday left fielder. So now you're kind of down to just a couple spots there. And it's interesting. You've got to strip away one of your best hitters. And that's like your first step sort of starting an offseason when you need offense, like the offense has struggled. And it's 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 kind of a weird spot to be in. They've, they've painted themselves in the corner with some contracts that you're right, James. I don't think they're going to go back out there and, and spend $190 million again. They just spent that, and then you have uh, this season where they're careening towards 500, right? And 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 they've been terrible at home, too. So, like, it, it doesn't even help. Like, if they were great at home 
and yeah, the the gate was uh, ramping up, but they're they're down year over year as far as ticket sales at home. So I don't. That's a good question. I wrote on uh, on one or from the one hundred eight a blog about what to do here, kind of like laying out the things. I, the only thing I'm totally against is I don't want to trade Eloy. Any other machination, and I love Jose Abreu, but I would be fine with him walking, depending on how they address it around it, because I know that you know that these are valuable resources. They need money, and and. You know, it, either it's it's probably an either or at this point. It's either Andrew Vaughn or Jose Abreu, and I think they're going to lean towards the cheaper option and go with Andrew Vaughn. Uh, you know, but I, my only thing is, do not trade Eloy. I don't want to get in a spot where he goes somewhere else and hits fifty home runs. I want him to hit his fifty here, provided he could ever stay healthy. Yeah. So I mean, to me, the Vaughn thing. It's interesting, like we're big fans and I think Mike Rankin might be his biggest fan and he can chime in here in a second. But I mean, like he does have to be better. Like this is not totally what I was expecting, right? I mean, he's got a 122 WRC plus and 17 homers. He's got a 0.1 fan graphs war because of just how absolutely atrocious he is as an outfielder. Yeah, he's he's 16 outs below average. Like, yeah, that's, like that's he's, a lot. he's awful and it, crater, it craters all of his value, right? So what does that yeah. look like at first? Like, you know, does he hit 25 homers and improve the walk rate? Like, you know, we better hope so, right? But I mean, right. even the Abreu thing, like it, it's a he's had a great year. I mean, it's... Like, if you just look at statistics, it's one of his better statistical seasons, like, from an analytical standpoint, right? Like, he's a four-war player. But, I yeah. mean, where do you come off on what is more valuable to this White Sox team? Because he decided to just, like, walk like crazy, finally. And that's something that I would have <laughs> yes. always said, like, man, Jose doesn't walk enough. But he's only got 15 yeah. homers. I mean, he's yeah. got to hit 30 yep. homers. He just has to. So, I, I think that makes it all just like a little bit tougher. Like I agree with you. Aloy Jimenez should be part of this team. I think Aloy and Robert, you know, I think you definitely gamble on and keep and Grandal and Mancata, like nobody wants. So no choice. Yeah. yeah. So I mean like to change this team, like, yeah, I mean, you're looking at a Vaughn, like a Brayu decision probably. And I think it's going to be a tough one for the front office. Yeah. I think Abreu is aging into his Michael Brantley portion of his career where he's going to hit for a higher average, get on base more and maybe not have uh, so much power. I, I heard uh, a good breakdown from, uh, from uh, Dave Williams from, from Barstool talking about how it looks like uh, his approach is realizing that he can't smash the same balls that he could out of the ballpark. So he's realizing, well, I'm going to just punch this ball to right center. This is the way I'm going to get on base now. And, and Hey, great hitters uh, adjust over time, right? Great hitters realize some of them make the turn of, I'm just going to swing for power all the time. I'm going to let the average plummet. I'll let my on-base percentage bounce with, uh, you know, with the additional walks from hitting for the power. Jose's kind of going in the other direction right now. Now, I don't know. He looks like he's been hurt almost all year. Like, he looks like he can't hardly run out there. So, I don't know if next year he snaps back, James, and it's like, oh, well, he had a hip problem the entire season. So, now the power comes back. I have no idea what it's going to look like. I think on the free agent market, though, he's probably someone that a, a, a good team that generally just like fills first base internally might go out and splash for him and add themselves their sixth good bat. You know, like, you know, an Astros or something like that. Go out and get a Jose Abreu. And maybe he'll be priced out of what the, the Sox could do. But I would love to see him, Jose Abreu, be on the roster until he's bad. I want to see him be Paul Canerico bad in a White Sox uniform. And I know that's counter, uh, that's the fan of me talking. That's counter like the White Sox being good. But I, that's just what I want to see. I want to see him. Uh, retire here. So that's a, from a selfish uh, fan standpoint, but from an analytical standpoint, I'm not sure what they do. You say that, and I feel like the White Sox also have that same sort of sentiment. I think the White Sox want Jose Abreu to be a White Sox for life, mm-hmm. and that leads me to ask you this question. We know Jerry Reinsdorf is in charge of the White Sox. 
but the power structure within the front office. How does any organization, how can any organization function with this type of setup? As well as the fact that there is still some contention in the front office related to Tony LaRusso's future and his potential role moving out of the manager's office. I mean, how does any organization function like this? Yeah, I don't know. It's it's very muddy, at least from the outside, right? We we don't know who was calling the shots at any particular point, right? And and it makes it even muddier because the only guy who ever really talks is Han. You know, I mean, Tony, when he was in the dugout, obviously had uh, that was his job to talk every day, but he wasn't necessarily talking about this stuff. I never hear from Kenny Williams. I haven't heard from Kenny Williams in a long time. And then Jerry never talks either. I mean, Jerry talks through his Bob Nightingales of the world, but he's not talking directly to you, the fan. So it's extremely confusing for us. So in general, we kind of like blob it all together. But I, I admit, I I blame Han more only because he has uh, he has the uh, Ivy League MBA. And so I like to pick on those people more. So that's why I tend to blame him more. But it's a muddy structure there. You don't know who's really calling the shots. And you don't know who's going to get the, the upper hand other than the owner's probably going to have final say, which I guess it happens in all businesses. So do you do you want to get more confused? So since we've sure. <laughs> since we've been recording, um, yeah. Bob Nightingale released his latest today at the uh, where, wherever what's he at USA Today I believe USA I Today right. yep. yeah. and he says there's a deep divide in the Chicago White Sox organization shocker right on whether they <laughs> should bring Tony Larusa back boot him upstairs give the manager's job to interim Miguel Cairo or look outside the organization thanks Bob. So, I mean, you know, right. Yeah. So, I mean, they could do any of these things. And I guess, I guess I always just assumed that it was up to Tony, but at this point, like if he can't manage the rest of this season, I don't know why he would get clearance to manage next season. So, um, so while everything is like probably up to Jerry and Tony, like I just assume that, that he'll be upstairs. Yeah. He'll be taking some position, right? So something sitting next to Jerry basically. Yes. Maybe he'll be in the one Oh eight. <laughs> I mean, he's 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 welcome to come through if he's willing to buy a few rounds. Probably <laughs> accidentally, he just want he just wanders over there. Yeah, like you just see Don't this. Yeah, but I mean, if that's the case, I mean, like okay, so so a new manager and who knows, like maybe they finally do a search. Like, but you know, I keep hearing about the window, the window, and like I I believe in windows. I think it's I think it's true that like teams, you know, generally set like okay, this is like a period of time where we're going to try to win, and this is a period right. of time where we're going to take a step back. Can this thing be salvaged? I mean, I think 2023 has to be like an all-in compete type year just because of some of their contracts, right? But can this thing be salvaged? Uh, Yeah, I think it can. I I think you have enough players on the roster who were well below their baseline and shouldn't be as bad, even if if they're not the player you think they are. Like, I think a lot of the fan base has realized that 2019 Yohan Mankata is not coming back. But if you get 2021 Yohan Mankata, that's a good, decent player, right? You you need kind of these dead cat bounces out of some guys. You know, Yasmani Grandal can't be $18 million of nothing. You know, you, you, you're kind of painted into a spot where you need some some pop-up like that, and you're going to need some help. You're going to need uh, someone to come out of nowhere and, and help this roster out. You In this year, you got, you know, th- th- these are potentially parts of this roster that won't be here next year when you're thinking of the calculus of 2023. Jose Abreu is trotting out a four-war season, right? F4, B-war, whatever whatever version you want to uh, look at. Uh, Johnny Cueto was signed kind of after, uh, right as the season starting, and he gave you kind of ace work for 130 innings or whatever it was. And then uh, you picked up Elvis Andrews, and he was out of his mind for a month, right? You're not getting any of that next year, right? Assume none of that. So you're going to need to fill that, that stuff up first, and then, and then you got to go from there. Can it be salvaged? I think so. I think it can. 
The only problem is the team that's ahead of you right now, the team that's going to win this division has eight top 100 prospects. So they're not slowing down. And, and, they, and they've got generally like a cheap, extremely young core. So that's going to be a tough team going into next year. Lord help us if they actually choose to spend. If Cleveland decides they're going to spend, then that's going to cause some problems for the White Sox in their window. And I agree with you, James. Like 23 has got to be an all-in year because you're going to shed some payroll after 23. And so you can re-rack it in 24 kind of in whatever direction you want. So I agree. This is your last last year with uh, Lucas Giolito, most likely. This is your last year with Yasmani Grandal if he ever pops back up to what he's supposed to be. So this is the time to push. Lance Lynn as well. And yep. Beef, when we're talking about – and I bring up Lance Lynn for a reason. In the clubhouse, right, these are human beings wearing uniforms, playing for a professional organization, and we just expect them to regress to their career averages. But we know that in – in life, that doesn't happen because we're human and we make mistakes or we have emotions that impact our day to day. Now, when I say that, I want to ask you if the core that they have invested in, like we've been talking about in Aloy Jimenez, Luis Robert, Yuan Moncada, Tim Anderson, those who signed pre RBD or during arbitration signed long term contracts that were mutually beneficial. It helps the franchise a ton if you believe that these are going to be your impact players and you can get them on the cheap over an extended period of time. I understand the thinking there, but to this point, we see a lack of fundamental consistency within a lot of these guys who you expected to be the core. And then those who you brought in, in terms of the veterans, AJ Pollock, and like we talked about Johnny Cueto and Elvis Andrews, Liam Hendricks, Lance Lynn, they're the ones stepping up and speaking into the microphone and saying, listen, this isn't a brand of baseball that we want to play. Where's the disconnect there? Is is there something to the fact that guys who sign the long-term deals with limited major league experience just haven't had that sort of experience to build on the necessary fundamentals or the little things like getting to the extra base, making that extra play that ultimately decides ball games in some cases? I mean, I, I kind of doubt there's a correlation, and the reason why I doubt it is because it seems to work for other teams. So, you know, like when they when the other teams sign uh, the pre arb deals and the guys are superstars, that you don't ever hear any of these concerns. At least I don't from from uh, out of town perspectives. So uh, no, I don't. I don't think there's a correlation to that kind of at all. I think what what happens is you know when when you're playing great, it kind of covers up everything, right? I, I still see people. Uh, you know, uh, complaining about Eloy Jimenez uh, not hustling out and getting a, a double when he hits a ball off the wall. He's uh, playing on one leg and he has a 184 WRC plus in the second half. You know, he's playing like a superstar. You know, there's some, not everyone's good at everything, right? I'd rather have the guys that play like superstars and not worry as much about the little fundamentals. Elvis Andrews gets all kinds of credit, but I've seen him drop 43 cutoff balls thrown into him since he's been with the White Sox this year. It's like, <laughs> yeah, he does some smart stuff and he does some dumb stuff too. Like if you're watching real close, you'll see, oh man, that, that, that was a mistake right there. You know, Yohan Mankata gets gets the butt of a lot of this stuff, right? Where it's like, oh, he, he, he you know, lost concentration out in the field. Yohan Mankata also makes plenty of terrific plays no other third baseman are making, you know? So I, I, I get where this is coming from and and I, I get frustrated when it happens in, in real time. But I part of me wants to step back and say, look, I have to watch all the teams and see how often they they lapse in this stuff for me to get a, a proper calculus. And no, I do not think uh, a young player getting money early has anything to do with it, potentially. That's that's my opinion. And it's totally fair. And I, <laughs> Elvis Andrews just fits right in, just based on your description. <laughs> I want to go back to Eloy Jimenez because that is such a significant piece in all of this. And it's unfortunate because of the position restriction that he ultimately has to deal with. And he is an elite hitter. He just has to stay healthy, and I yep. agree with you wholeheartedly and James that Aloy Jimenez should be a part of this 
thing moving forward. So with that being said, I know we talked about it a little bit and the, the fact that the future of Jose Abreu is in question, but you think about the outfield moving forward. Is Gavin Sheets a part of this, knowing that Oscar Colas is going to be a major piece in the future of the franchise? You know, it's funny. I I, I just wrote up a, a blog about kind of what to do with the Abreu situation. And one of the machinations, and a lot of it is like, well, you got to choose between Abreu or Vaughn. It's Abreu or Vaughn. That's not true. You could get rid of Abreu and Vaughn. You could let Abreu walk, trade Vaughn, and make the two-headed monster of Gavin Sheets and Jake Berger your first base, uh, you know, uh, you know, platoon uh, group. Thinking outside the box, this is what the White Sox have a lot of, right? They have a lot of these guys. So maybe you trade the the perceived best one of those guys, get something back that you need, and you go with kind of the you know the eighty percent, the avant garde versions of these, and play them in there. I do think uh, Gavin Sheets has a staying power with the White Sox. I don't think it's as a full time player. I mean, he clearly hits right; he's just fine. He's developed into an okay enough right fielder where I'm not afraid to play him out there a couple days a week. Uh, you know, you don't want that to be your everyday right fielder. But I, I'm trying to think of ways to repurpose what the White Sox are kind of strong in. Like the, <laughs> James has been bringing it up all year. You, they should have never, and I'm and I'm a Larry Garcia defender. They should have never uh, brought Larry Garcia back because they have Larry Garcia types come, you know, oozing up from the minor leagues. And you know, I think the jury's still out on Aromi Gonzalez uh, because he strikes out uh, almost every time I see him play. But you kind of have that that type of player. The White Sox have a lot of these corner guys that don't really, you know, they can't really play another position. You can give Jake Berger a glove at third. You know, the results aren't always so great. So I do think uh, Gavin Sheets ends up being in this in some way. A good team should have a, a good lefty bat, platoon side bat that, that can come off the bench and hit right-handed pitching. And God knows this team needs that. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think Sheets can play in the outfield sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. And Andrew Vaughn absolutely cannot. Like, that, that should right. never happen again. So that's kind of why... I think I've just kind of said, like, for the people that want a Jose Abreu back, and, like, I get it, right? Like, he, I mean, in an ideal world, he does retire here. I just, I don't think Jose Abreu and Andrew Vaughn can be on the same roster anymore. It's not going to work. And it sounds like, oh, yeah, you put one at first and one at DH. Okay, great. Like, you know, until Aloy, like, has to DH or one of these other guys has to DH because they're injured or whatever. And, you know, I think one of the under, I guess, under-talked about things is, like, like I think AJ Pollock's going to be back. Because yeah, why? I, I mean, why? Too. Why yeah. would he decline an option at this point? I mean, he's going to yeah. make thirteen million dollars next year. He's going to be part of this, and I still think they need two left-handed bats. So you know, one. Right. I think I think one of them can be Oscar Colas. That's fine, but yep. that shouldn't be your like I like I've been covering Oscar Colas for years. Like he's exceeded my expectations, but he can't be like one of the guys you're counting on. Like that's right. that's crazy to me. He has to be extra. I just don't know. I have no idea like how they're going to be able to do this. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, James. Like, and 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 AJ Pollock at this point is a platoon side, uh, faces only lefties outfielder, in my opinion. Like, he just can't hit right-handed pitching at this point. Like, he smashes lefties. That's a good spot for him. You don't want to pay thirteen million for that guy, but you're kind of you've been you painted yourself in that the the Craig Kimbrell corner has been painted already, and you're kind of there. Mike, let me get your thoughts on this. We're talking about you know Jose Abreu and Andrew Vaughn can't uh, coexist. What about Jose Abreu to left field? Yeah, right. Let's do it. <laughs> Why not? Beef. Andrew Vaughn played second base. <laughs> Anything can happen, man. It's not for lack of effort. Andrew just doesn't have the tools to do these things. Like, you know, you're asking him to do something. It's not It's not in the cards for him. You know, like, it'd be the, like, okay, let's put Yasmani Grandal in the outfield. How do you think that's going to work out? Not good. Like, it just doesn't, you know, it, it's not going to happen. 
So when it comes to the depth in the minors, we brought it up a little bit, and we mentioned Oscar Colas briefly. Curious your thoughts, if you have any, on of uh, on his performance this year, expectations for Colas moving down the road, uh, as well as anybody else in the minors that stood out to you. Yeah, you know what? Um, so uh, specifically on Colas, like we've been, and as one of waiters, we've been getting more and more excited about him. I thought he was going to be the type of guy. Uh, that was going to be kind of uh, a straight power hitter in right field. Some nights he's going to disappoint me uh, when he gets up to Chicago because he strikes out three times. Other nights he's going to hit two home runs and he's going to be my hero because he's playing right in front of us. But more of the reports I'm hearing is that the defense is is, is better than I thought it was going to be. Like, you know, the guy could even flex and play center field, but he should be a plus kind of right fielder. That would be exciting to have because we haven't had that in a really long. I mean, Alex Rios is probably the last guy manning right field that I thought, oh, this guy can really play right field. You know, so I, I think that'll be exciting. I can't wait for him to get here. I also don't want to rush it, though, because you see power numbers in the minors, and then when th- when people come to the majors, it doesn't always immediately translate. So I don't, I don't want to kind of uh, put push him to the majors, but I, I hope we see him next year. I hope we get a chance to at least sink our teeth into him. Uh, with regards to uh, the minors, you know, the, the most pleasant surprise for us one of waiters was was Davis Martin. We call him the dart because we were, we were doing a uh, – uh, a watch party on playback with the Sox machine guys. And it was during his first start. And we were asking the commenters and one of the commenters came up with the nickname, the dart. So that's what we call him. But it's nice to have a guy come up out of the minors guy that I've never heard of. He's not on the lists or anything shows up and gives you five good innings. It's like, this is a uh, something I'm not expecting going into the year. Treasy and I were looking at the, the, the 40 man in the minor league depth. And we're like, we don't have anyone on the 40 man roster. That is a guy who has minor league options and can come up and spot start. Uh, you know, for this team and, and be reputable. And that's a spot where we knew, like, from a depth standpoint, they were lacking. And so was it really exciting to see this guy kind of come up, adds velocity, you know, uh, you know, goes off, works on his game in the offseason, adds some velocity, and becomes a real guy. Do you, do you guys think there's kind of – there could be more of this uh, coming in the pipeline? Because this could really change the calculus of going forward seasons of the White Sox if they can make these types of guys pop up where you don't have to worry so much about, oh, who's going to – who's our sixth, seventh, eighth starter – these guys are going to come up and be reputable. Well, James, let me throw it to you here and quickly on Davis Martin. It's just been a joy to watch him pitch at the big league level because he has command of multiple pitches and he pitches well, right? Like a guy who can locate mixed speeds and does that effectively, not overpowering, although his velocity has gained miles per hour across the last two seasons, which has allowed him to have success at the big league level. It's a big part of the reason why. But James, uh, to Beef's point, I think – Especially with Davis Martin, that's a, that's a guy that you want to continue to develop as a starter. Jimmy Lambert's a little different, I think starter turned reliever and back end guy who can go maybe multiple innings. Or uh, I just think it's important to recognize Davis Martin as a starter and allow him to continue to be a starter because not everybody can come out of the pen and be effective like Jimmy Lambert has. But to Beef's point, James, please uh, go ahead and speak on the depth that the Sox farm has in the pitching ranks. Well, I mean, so it's it's not really immediate pitching depth, right? But they, they've added a lot of, like, college guys that could pop at any time. Like, I think it's tough to make a prediction. But, like, Sean Burke started in AAA, I think, what, last night or recently. I mean, he's probably the next guy. I saw Jonathan Stever is, like, back pitching, like a guy that everybody's seen. Like, he had a lat injury that sidelined him most of this year. But, I mean, the thing with Davis Martin, like, it was kind of weird because he was a 14th rounder, you know, out of a Texas a- or Texas Tech, I think, that we kind of knew. And he was okay in the minors, and he could always pitch, but he was, like, throwing 91-92. Then we hear at Instructs last year, like, oh, Davis Martin's throwing, like, 96-97, and his stuff ticks up. And then all of a sudden, he's in the majors. 
I mean, that's a guy with an ERA under four in the majors. It's it really felt like like found money. Like he really did kind of save them. So yeah, like I I don't have like the next name, right? But if this is like a thing that the White Sox can do, this is the type of stuff that they have to be able to do. Like guys just like come out <laughs> right. of nowhere and they're like pitching for you. Like me, me and Mike talked to uh, Andy Barquette earlier this year. He's the White Sox minor league hitting coordinator. And he was like a hit, you know, a big league hitting coach. Like we liked a lot of the stuff that he had to say. And, you know, you see the seasons that Romy Gonzalez had last year and Lenin Sosa had this year. And, you know, I think yep. there's some real gains on the offensive side and the minors, but we had heard that like the pitching, you know, weren't seeing those same gains. Um, so seeing a guy like Davis Martin kind of just like makes you raise an eyebrow, like, okay, maybe, you know, maybe there are some, and you know, like Jared Kelly, Matthew Thompson, those guys finally had decent seasons. So maybe they are making some headway. I just think they didn't have a bunch of pitchers in their upper minors. And that should change like over the next 18 months or so, just by them drafting as many college pitchers as they have. Yeah, I mean, that's why it was exciting, right? Because because when you're looking at the depth chart before the season, it's like I, none of these guys are going to be because Steve was on the shelf. And you know about Jimmy Lambert, but Jimmy Lambert had not been great in his uh, kind of uh, you know appearances coming up as, as a starter. I, I like that you brought that up, Mike, because that's another key there, too. I'm glad to see, and I, I want to write a blog about this, I'm glad to see that both Jimmy Lambert and Ronaldo Lopez have effectively become high-leverage relievers. And I hope this is going to kind of like push the White Sox away from always paying for those guys out there, realizing that, hey, you know what, they could take some of the guys that maybe didn't make as a starter, transition them into this role, and they've been great. I mean... I think both of them are kind of wearing down a little bit as the season's going because their performances the last couple of weeks haven't been as sharp as they were the whole year, but that's bound to happen. I'm looking forward to these two guys being in high leverage spots going forward. I, I think I think that they're, they've found their careers. Beef, this has been awesome. Last one for me. Do you think that's where Major League Baseball is trending in terms of valuing long relievers, high-end, back-end? I know the closers and the eighth-inning guys are getting paid, and that's been apparent really since the Royals won the World Series. But just thinking about the value of guys like Ronaldo Lopez and Jimmy Lambert, and you look at the way the Rays are constructing their rotation using multiple pitchers in, in games. I know we talked about how you liked seeing starters go longer under Tony LaRusso with the White Sox, but it just I'm just curious and what the future of Major League Baseball and the starting rotation is looking like. Yeah, I mean, I assume I assume you're right. I think the, I mean, the, the goal always of ownership is to uh, to uh, lower the cost, right? So uh, yeah, I, th- I think the raise model is is uh, pushing uh, that forward where they're going with openers and they're going with kind of no name uh, uh, starters, piggybacking them and trying to build themselves, you know, twenty reliever arms that they could shuttle back and forth. Guys that are throwing ninety five, use them for uh, a month, send them back down bring the next group back up that's uh, uh, admittedly fresher. So, yeah, I think the you know that that is probably the the direction it's going. I wonder if I wonder if uh, the commissioner's office will ever put in uh, rules to try to stop some of this stuff because really the it's the run prevention side that makes the game less watchable. I know they're doing some uh, you know cosmetic things that I'm not sure is really going to improve the maybe maybe shifting will will improve uh, the batting average of the left-handed hitters a little bit, but you know the the, the run environment is based on you know, this top end velocity that all these, you know, it wasn't like this 10, 15, 20 years ago. Not everyone, you know, the average fastball wasn't 94 miles an hour. So I, I think it's definitely trending in that direction. It'll keep going there un- until uh, there's some way to stop it or some someone else figures out a way to push back. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Like I've always said, like, you know, they're trying, they want more offense and they want more action and the way it was, you know, where there's, 
like more triples and more small ball and stuff. And I think the only way to do that is to make pitchers somehow worse. Um, you know, and it's just not going to happen. Like, like pitchers are just so freaking good that, you know, that's why a lot of these front offices started going towards the three true outcomes because it's like, okay, well, we're not going to string six hits together to score a run. Like it's just not really possible anymore. So yeah, that's uh, I'm glad you said that. So my last thing for you, something, you know, you're very tuned into white Sox Twitter. Something that's been bothering me is just like the thought that the Yasmani Grandal signing is, is proof that, you know, signing contracts is bad. Like, I think it's, yeah. I think it's proved the opposite. I think the Yasmani Grandal deal, like when you look at how he performed in 2020 and 2021, it proves to me that the White Sox should sign deals like that more often. What do you think? Yeah, I, I would agree with, I lean to agree with you here, James. I want to, I'm going to do the cold hard analysis on like uh, total value versus uh, total dollars kind of, pro- I'll probably wait until uh, the, the off season comes just through the first three years of the deal. But I tend to agree. And I think people, uh, in a way, the expectation is when you sign a guy for, let's say, it's four-year deal with Grandal, their expectation is you're going to get X output every single year exactly the same. And that's generally not what happens. Generally, up front in the deal, you're getting a little discount. The guy is going to be a little better player, and they're going to outperform it. The team is amortizing the money out uh, to a palatable amount, just like you and I paying our mortgage, right? We don't pay all the money up front for the thing. We're paying it over over years. And yes, my home is going to be in worse condition at year 30 of my mortgage than it was at year one. And that's how free agents kind of tend to be. So yeah, he's having a a terrible year this year, but you may see a a bounce back next year. And then when you do the totality of the contracts, like, yeah, they made out like bandits here. Yes, you did have to suffer through that one bad year, but the 2021 year you got was awesome. And that's sometimes how uh, free agents work. So yeah, I I, I don't, to me, it's not a deterrent. I would go do something like that again, uh, you know, and just hope for, hope for better luck on the one clunker year. Because I've said, like, I'm totally, like, obviously, like, we saw how the Manny Machado thing played out. And, like, you know, we all wish that Manny Machado was on our favorite team, right? But, like, if you're going to stay away from, like, $300 million contract, I understand it. Like, if you're going to sign a bunch of these, like, four-year 70 deals, like, every offseason. But you can't do neither. The problem is that, like, they do (laughs) neither. And it's, like, a huge issue. So. Yeah, totally agree. Beef, thanks so much for taking the time. What do you have going on uh, from the 108.com that we can look forward to? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, we're going to continue doing uh, the 108 podcast, which we stream uh, Thursday nights at 8 p.m. Central Time on YouTube every week. We're going to continue it in the offseason because there'll be some stuff to talk about, and we'll just have our normal fun that we usually do. Uh, today, uh, when we're recording this on Sunday, is our last Sunday soak of the regular season. What the Sunday soak is for your listeners is it's a YouTube show as well, but we do it from my hot tub, and we take questions from White Sox Twitter. Uh, that'll be the last one of the regular season, but it'll be up on YouTube kind of after this drops. We may do a, a couple in the offseason, and then the plan will probably be to, uh, to do a live show at some point uh, in and around when Sox Fest occurs. That's like early January. We've done it a couple times at Reggie's uh, Rock Club on, on the south side, and uh, that's probably going to be uh, what ends up happening in the offseason. So there'll still be plenty of uh, content for the people that uh, like to come catch the 108ers. Oh, man, I hope I hope we're at Reggie's. That would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, that will be, be great. I feel like the last time we did that was so long ago. That would be, that would be wonderful. Beef, thank you so much. Uh, we'll see if this episode makes the cut at the end of the year. <laughs> I'll hold it against you if it doesn't, Mike. Thanks so much, Mike, James. Good talking to you boys. Uh, As always, hope to catch up with you soon outside the podcast. That was Beef Loaf at Mr. Delicious 13 on Twitter. You can follow From the 108 on Twitter at From the 108 and follow their podcast as well. Go to FromThe108.com to check out all that they have to offer. Beef's a a favorite of ours, James. Just love getting his perspective on the big league club and the future of the White Sox because – 
right now it's it's a tough road for the White Sox to just make like simple decisions at this point because of how dysfunctional this all turned out to be. Yeah, and we've always kind of said like like nobody's in charge, right? And it's kind of the way they want it because it's really tough to you know, it's tough to blame just anyone because we don't know who's doing what, right? And I think you see it all over Twitter. Like, I think I accused, I get accused of being a Rick Hahn apologist and like, like I get it. I just like, I, I don't like, I, I guess like in this scenario, like firing the general manager, like it doesn't really solve anything because I don't know how much the general manager is allowed to do, right? It would, it would take like a complete house cleaning for anything to be different. And it just doesn't seem like that's something that's in Jerry Reinsdorf's nature. So yeah, so it seems to be leaning towards probably a new manager, right? And then, you know, they'll have to like shift the roster a little bit, but man, they're locked into lots of these guys. I mean, I think the team's going to look really similar, probably under a new day-to-day leadership. Um, Mm -hmm. And we'll, you know, we'll try to cover it the best we can, obviously. But yeah, it's just, you know, it's it's very disappointing. Um, And I'm usually positive, like by nature, like I do think, you know, they have tough decisions to make, but I don't think they're like done by any means. I mean, they should be able to contend next season. They have too many good players on their team. It's just, you know, they, they have to make the correct moves. And if people don't trust that they will at this point, like I completely understand why, obviously. You make a couple of good points there. I think they absolutely can't contend. I think the talent is still there and there's going to be some holes on the roster and some bad money, but I believe they can still compete. And what you said is true. It it all does come down to the moves that are made this offseason. And when it comes to firing Rick Hahn, hypothetically, he's being influenced by those around him. So there's got to be some sort of accountability outside of Rick Hahn as well. And that's the point, right? Not one person is is in charge. There's no director of baseball personnel, right? Like doing all of the decision-making. And it's unfortunate because you can look at some of the decisions Brickhan's made and identify, yes, this is this is poor roster management. But again, it's not 100% all Rickon. It's hard for me to come to a conclusion on how to feel about the way things have been run in the front office, knowing that it's not Rickon's fault exclusively. Like these are decisions made by the owner that had a trickle-down effect over the last two years that has kind of squashed any opportunity of winning a World Series during a window that took about four and a half, five years to construct, or at least have an opportunity to compete. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's really tough to figure out who's doing what, right? Like, it's just, it's always kind of been the way that that the White Sox have been. And it's like a lot of people, I think, would be like, oh, go get somebody from the outside. But I mean, like Kenny Williams is the executive vice president of the organization. And like, I don't I don't know how much Kenny's doing. Right. But like even his presence is a deterrent to getting like the the next great young executive that you want to go hire. Right. Like, a you know, like the Cubs hired Carter Hawkins from Cleveland and Detroit's probably about to do similar where they hire some 30 year old GM. Like, I just I don't think anybody like that is coming to Chicago to replace Rick Hahn to work under Ken Williams. So, I mean, this is just, yeah, I mean, they need to empower somebody, but once they do that, we still won't really know. Like as long as, you know, it's Jerry Reinsdorf ownership, this is just kind of the way his, his organizations run. I just wonder if, if it's even worth talking about (laughs) Rick Hahn not being there next year, James, do you feel like he'll be back? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it seems Me like too, I mean, right? in some capacity, right? Because there was the Chris Getz stuff where it's like Chris Getz is going to be the GM and whatever. But that's all like that doesn't that type of stuff doesn't change anything. 
Like it's all, it's all like mm-hmm. kind of the same people. Right. I mean, we mentioned it with beef, like the Bob Nightingale piece came out today. Like they can't even put their heads together and decide to do what to do right. like a manager. So I feel like every decision is like this, which makes it tough to analyze. Mm-hmm. And then that leads to us questioning any sort of justification for firing Rick Hahn, even though you can make a case and it's totally fair. But at the same time, it's kind of counterproductive, I think, at this point. I don't know. I, if watching it from Rick Hahn's view, doing what he did leading up to 2021 and to have to have the managerial search swooped from underneath him. And it's Tony LaRussa and the way that the roster was constructed. We talked about this with beef. I, James, this had to have something to do with it. Rick Hahn had an idea of how the roster would be implemented and, and managed. And Tony LaRussa just did it his own way. And it was completely counterintuitive. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, Rick's reputation on like, one year signings like over the years, like really hasn't been great. So like, I do think there's some stuff that you can point to where you could say that like a a complete like swap of leadership would be fine. Like, look, if the White Sox like announced like at the end of the season that they were cleaning house and like hiring a president of baseball operations, like I would have no issue with that. I just think it's like the, the moving chairs around that like doesn't, really make a difference right so and it's it's more of like what we're used to but i mean yeah like i think there were clearly like a lot of tony larusa influenced decisions like on this roster right like there's no way larry garcia was signed to play in the role that tony was playing him in and i think it was evident by like how little miguel cairo used him i mean you know that's why like i would put it on the front office like that they brought him back in general, right? But how he was deployed is totally on Tony. And mm-hmm. and you saw like how Larusa loves using one inning relievers still. So that's why they signed so many of them. I mean, it's just yeah, like some of that stuff from like yesteryear that we like kept seeing. Right. You know, but yeah, I mean, no, the manager definitely influenced roster decisions. So now it'll be interesting to see where they go from here. If there's so many layers to this, which is just wild. So we'll monitor the big league White Sox. Of course, we cover the organization here of Future Sox, but our focus is on the minor league specifically. Today, we stepped away from that a little bit, interviewing B-Flow from the 108, and it was therapeutic because we lived through it, not only this year, but the year prior, and it's just been a failure, and the White Sox failed big time this year. So, James, with that being said, let's celebrate uh, what we have to come and the Future Sox podcast, as well as futuresox.com, will be reviewing the affiliates, the seasons from all White Sox minor league clubs from AAA all the way on down. So stay tuned to futuresox.com for that. As well as on the podcast, James, we're looking ahead. There's going to be some guests that I think now we could sort of move to the next thing is the minor league season is over. Our evaluations are going to come to fruition more and more as we start to see leaps and bounds from these prospects. And we're going to have more guests on, obviously, for the Future Sox podcast. Every Tuesday, you can get it through the Blue Wire Network. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast. James, this has been great. Can't wait to do it again next week. Yep, sounds good. It's always good to join you. We should have uh, you know, some interesting stuff going forward just because you know, when it's time for the offseason, I think you can – you know, you can delve into some other stuff and, you know, follow some more big league topics. So, you know, as long as there aren't big league games happening, I'm cool talking about the big league White Sox.
There it is. James Fox, the co-host of the Future Sox podcast, as well as the senior editor at futuresox.com. We talked to Beef Loaf. Be sure to follow him at Mr. Delicious 13. James is at James Fox 917. I'm at Rankin906 on Twitter. Also follow us at Future Sox. Email us if you're interested, futuresox at gmail.com. We'll answer your questions here on the podcast. We do it every Tuesday. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. We'll talk to you all next week.